Today, just take a few minutes uh, just to pray for him, to lift him up and what he's doing. Um, he's going to be over there for almost two weeks. He's with uh, a ministry team over there um, doing a little bit of speaking, even kind of checking things out, keeping an open mind if God may have a way for him and even for us to get involved over there overseas. That would be awesome. So let's just take a minute. Would you just join me as I pray and just lift him up? God, we thank you for today, for a new day. Thank you that your mercies are new this morning, that you never change, God. You are today who you, who you are, who you have always been and will always be. Um, God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity you've given uh, Pastor Sean just to go overseas to the nation of India. God, the nation that you love. Lord, a very dark, dark nation, God. Uh, we know that we want, that you want the light of Christ to shine there, and that it can and will, Lord. And so, um, Lord, we lift, we lift Sean up to you as he's there. Just pray that you protect him, keep him safe as he's traveling um, in a new, a new place. Hardships just to travel itself. Lord, um, we lift that up to you. And we pray, God, that uh, you would use him in some small way, God, as he speaks and shares the gospel. Lord, that you would plant seeds through your word, um, in hearts, God, even bring, bring new souls to yourself through that. And uh, we, Lord, we pray, too, that you would just speak to his heart. Um, I know that this is going to have a tremendous impact on him. And as he wrestles with things and with you, Lord, that you would just reveal to him ways that you desire him and even us as a church to be involved. God, in your work overseas, you are so much bigger than Portland or the United States. You're a God of the world. And you love all people. You desire all peoples to come to know you. So Lord, we lift him up. We thank you for the privilege. Lord, uh, as we come to your word now, uh, this is your word, the very words of our creator. We believe that this morning. May we come not just to read your word, but to be read by it. God, allow you to examine our hearts, that we would be open to what you have to say. Uh, and Lord, that we'd be open to the transformation of your spirit. Because we want to change, God, to leave different than when we came in become more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand up with me? We are going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to find that in your Bibles, give you a second to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 is where we are. Let's read this together. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can be seated. Wow, that's an amazing passage of scripture. And my only prayer this morning is that I don't mess it up. <laughs> because I'd like to just pray now and get on with some worship. Um, here's what's going on in, the, in this passage today. The, the letter, 2 Corinthians, the letter that Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And kind of the background of this, one of the main themes that's motivating his letter is that there's all this turmoil going on in the church. You see that, a lot of that in 1 Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians, he's writing, one of the aspects is he's defending his ministry because there's these people in the church and leaders in the church that are saying, Paul and his comrades, because he planted the church and then left, he's traveling around. They said, hey, they're not real apostles from God. They're not really blessed by God. Look at them. They're suffering. Why would they be suffering if they're, if they're doing this work for Jesus and God is blessing it? Why are they suffering? Why are they going through all of these hardships? Why aren't we seeing fruit in these areas? So Paul, throughout this letter, is writing, defending that. So keep that in mind as we go through. But whenever you see Paul doing this, in the letters that he writes, he takes the opportunity to clarify what the church is all about. And this is one of the prime examples right here. If you've been in church for a while, you know that a lot of the problems that exist outside the church are just non-existent in the church. I mean, you never see gossip. You never really see relationship struggles. Um, you know what I mean? You guys with me on that? Okay. You know I'm being sarcastic, right? It's actually, in my experience, worse, but um, we won't go into that. Uh, I don't know why that is. Um, but uh, so we come to church, and we're a part of this church, and... And some of us, probably most of you in this room, I would guess, are serving in some way. We're do, you're doing ministry. Paul is talking about ministry in this letter. The word ministry means to serve. So you come to church and you're serving, you're engaging. I, I don't know what that would mean for you. It might mean working downstairs with the kids or, uh, you know, passing the offering plate around. Or it may be stuff during the week where you're serving. Just whatever capacity, there's all these opportunities to serve in the church. You're engaged in ministry. And within that... We have all these issues that come in the church constantly. Things are happening. Relationships, there's tension in relationships. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question, but after a while you might start to say, why am I even doing this? (laughs) What's the good of this? I'm working my butt off. I'm sweating. And I don't even really know why. This is a great passage because what Paul is doing is he's bringing it home again and saying, this is the ultimate reason why the church exists. This is the reason why we expend energy. This is the reason why we put up with suffering. And even find joy in it. Because there's this ultimate cause, this ultimate reason that we exist as a church. And we forget it, and we can never remind ourselves of it too much. The reason is, God has given us a ministry. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That the world has been separated from God by sin. God looks down, is not counting the world's sins against them. Not counting people's trespasses against them, he says. He gave his son as a sacrifice. Take our punishment on the cross. So that we could be forgiven, brought into relationship with him. And now God is working and, and wants 
people to come to know him, to come to know that truth and to be in relationship with him again, to be reconciled to God. And he says he wants to do it through us. Yes, I know it's an extremely crazy idea. Uh, from what I've seen, we don't do the greatest job of this. For some reason, God's entrusted this ministry to us. This is why the church exists. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we gather during the week. This is why we serve. So what we're going to talk about today as we open is a couple of reasons why we do ministry. Paul shares some motivations he has for ministry. These are motivations. This is what causes me to keep going even when I'm suffering, even when I'm facing hardship and trials. I keep on going. There's two main reasons. Here's the first one. And, I, and before we go into this, let me just ask you a question. What are some of the reasons, just think about this to yourself, what are some of the reasons that you do ministry? What are some of the reasons that you serve? What are some of the motivations? I'm imagining in your head right now what's going on is um, Jesus died for me on the cross. He loves me, so I do it. Jesus loves other people, so I serve. I do it. Pastor told me I have to, so I do it. Maybe. Hopefully not. What are some of the reasons? Here's the reason Paul gives. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Persuasion is involved in the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fear of the Lord being a motivation? The Greek word for fear is phobos. You can imagine where we get, what word we get from that word phobia. It literally means to be scared, to be terrified. So someone asks you, why are you serving in the church? Why are you doing that? Because I'm scared of Jesus. <laughs> You're like, okay. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? Like, I'm scared, so I, therefore I serve. That's what it means. But we have to take the word in context. What does it really mean by that? Well, check this out. You've heard this before. He says, therefore. So whenever you see a therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. So we've got to go back and say, what is he coming off of? It's what Sean talked about last week. Look at the last verse before we start in 11. So verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me read that one more time. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Then he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Does that scare anyone? In here, sitting in a, a seat in front of Jesus Christ, who's saying, I know every single thing that you did in the body on earth during your lifetime. And not only that, I know exactly what was motivating you when you did it. I know about the times when you were sharing, sharing me with someone, but you didn't really care about them. What you really cared about was that they would believe and come to your church, for example. There was no love involved in that. He knows everything about it. The one who created you and knows you better than you know yourself is gazing into your eyes, and you're standing before him. Does that scare anyone in this room? Okay. It should sober us up a little bit. We're going to unpack this a little bit. But I've been wrestling and wrestling with this. We wrestled with it a little bit in our home community this week. Um, it's not an easy thing for us as Christians because in Christianity, and I'll say especially in American Christianity, in my experience, we don't talk a lot about this. What we hear is like songs where when we meet Jesus in heaven, this is how I picture him. He's going to be standing there in a flowing white robe, and he's going to be like, come here, you. Give us a big hug, right? 
And we're going to be crying. He's like, I love you so much. And he's going to do that with each one of us, right? And he's just going to hold us for like the first couple days when we're there, right? And just, just kind of like holding each other because we love each other so much, right? I mean, it's funny, but am I right? I mean, that's kind of what we focus on. You look at like, go to like a Christian bookstore and you see all these pictures on the wall with verses, right? And there's like a deer drinking from the brook gently. It's like, we have, you know, we hope in God or whatever it is, you know. Blessed is the man. You never see, I would like to see a picture of, of something of nature and then the verse, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You're like, that would just seem odd, wouldn't it? Or, you know, the Christian cards that you get and they have the verse on it. It's, it's, it's always got these really encouraging verses. Send someone a card of encouragement. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Just wanted to encourage you. You know, you're like, you know what I mean? You don't, you just, my point is, you just, we don't talk about it a lot. It's like, no, it's, it's all about grace, and I'm forgiven, and Jesus just looks at me, and he's just, every time he sees me, he just wells up with tears because he loves me so much, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way we think about it. Is all that stuff true? Yeah, it's completely true. So we have to be careful with this. There's two kinds of judgments in the Bible. One judgment is called the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, when every, everyone who did not believe the gospel and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be standing before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the judge. And he'll open a book, and if your name's not in that book, it's over. It's game over. You're done. You'll be condemned to everlasting judgment and punishment, what we know as hell. We as believers who have put our faith in Christ don't have to worry about that because we're secure in him. Our name is in the book. But there's another judgment, and and it's talked about in many places in the Bible, where we will stand before Christ as a Christian. We'll stand before Jesus, and he will examine our life, and he'll look at the deeds that we did, the the things that we did, whether good or bad, the motivations behind them, and we'll we'll be held to account for that. What does that look like before we unpack that anymore? Let me just share a few other passages um, where, where this is outlined. Because it's in the Bible probably a lot more than you may have thought. Romans chapter 14, Paul says, Why do you pass judgment, in verse, verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Pretty clear. In 1 Corinthians, the beginning chapters, he talks about working and the work of ministry. He says in verse 11 of chapter 2, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some of us, we're all going to heaven if we trust in Christ, but some are going to enter looking like a burnt piece of toast is basically what that's saying. Then he goes on, Therefore do not pronounce judgment in uh, chapter 4. Before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Book of Ecclesiastes, 
life is vain, life is meaningless. Solomon is searching what is the meaning of life. At the very end of the book, he sums it up by saying, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God. This is the whole duty of man. Basically, what he says is because every deed, all of the secret things will be brought to light and will be held accountable to God. That's what he says. Some of you have heard, um, and I'll end it with this, my point. Um, the parable of the talents. You heard that before? Jesus tells this parable, Matthew chapter 25. Parable of the talents, if you know that, it's familiar to you. Did you, ever, did you ever realize that that parable is in the midst of three chapters, almost three chapters where Jesus unpacks the end, the end times and judgment? Chapter 24, the apostles ask him, disciples ask him, when will the end come? So he starts unpacking it. Then he tells some parables. He talks about being ready. Here's what's important, not when I come or how it's going to happen, because that's what we really like to be obsessed with. You know, like the rapture, like everyone's going to disappear, like the movies and our clothes will be in a perfectly folded pile on the ground. Cars will become torpedoes. It will be absolute chaos. But we won't be here, right? Um, Just stuff like that. When is it going to happen? We try to calculate it out. Jesus' point on the end times is be ready, be faithful. When I come back, you don't know when it's going to happen. I want you to be found being faithful, doing the work of God with the right motives. That's what these parables are about. It starts out in, in 25 verse 14 of Matthew. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusted to them his property. He entrusts his pop- property to them. To sum it up, it's kind of a long passage. He gives one of them five denarii, one ten, two, and one, one denarii. He comes back. The one with five had actually doubled it and now had ten. The one with two doubled it and had four. important thing there is he doesn't expect you to have the most. It's according to what he's given you. So they each doubled it. That's what's important. The last guy just had one because he buried it. And he said, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. I knew that you were a hard man. So I just wanted to hang on to it. I didn't want to lose it. Now I have the one. Here's what the master answers him. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought, not, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The whole point of that is, He has entrusted them with something, and they were unfaithful with it. God has entrusted us each with gifts, with giftings, things that he expects us, desires us to use for his glory. And I don't know what those are for you. Each of us uh, knows that, and we can discover that. But he gives us these for a reason, to be active and to engage in what we're talking about today, which is ministry, and we'll be held accountable to that. That's what this verse is all about in verse 10. When we peer before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be an account of the things that we do now in the body. I think for a lot of us, like, it's, you know, the judgment to us, this type of judgment is like Santa Claus is coming to town. He's watching, going to see who's naughty or nice. You know what I mean? Like, we're all going to come. He's like, who's been good? Who's been bad? Okay, all the people who have been really good are going to be in this, in this place, and people bad over here. It's an account to God. It's not just keeping tabs on how good you were. It's like, what did you do with what I gave you? What was your motives behind that? Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but 
I think there's, for me personally, there's some, some sobriety when I think about that. And I might even feel a little bit of shame when I realize the unfaithful, the times where I was unfaithful. Praise God that he is faithful and that, that I will be saved by the blood of Christ. But this is meant to sober us up, and I hope that it does this morning. This is one of Paul's main motivations for ministry, to sober us up. There's not going to be any more evangelism in heaven. There's not going to be any more. The ministry of reconciliation is done. There's going to be a lot of worship. There's no more sin. There's no reason to bring anyone to Christ anymore. That's it. So this is our time right now. There's no sin in heaven. Um, I always, I don't know if you ever thought about this, I always worry that I'm going to be the one to screw that up when I get there. Can you imagine being in heaven and no sin? I'm never going to sin again. I'm just like, I'm going to be the one to screw that up. Uh, But hopefully not. Praise God that he's faithful and powerful. But that's the reality, guys. This is our one chance. This is our one shot. Your time right now in the body on this earth is the time for the ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to be held account on that day. Let's continue on. So he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Keeping this in mind, it makes me sober. It gives me reverence and fear that what I'm doing is sacred and what I'm doing matters and Jesus is watching. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. In these verses, he's defending himself, what people are saying about him, in light of this. What we are is known to God. doesn't matter what anybody else says, but we hope that you know it too and that you can see it. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. That is the point, what's in the heart, what God sees, the true motives behind it. For if we are beside ourselves, that literally means if we're crazy, if we're out of our mind, if we look that way, it's for God. Because we are being driven with the passion that he's going to talk about in a moment for this ministry. And we might appear crazy to to other people. But it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Motivation for ministry. Motivation number one for Paul is the fear of God. Here's motivation number two if you're taking notes. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Motivation number two is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Let's unpack that. First thing he says about the love of Christ is that it controls him. Uh, when I read this, I just think about a horse with a bit in its mouth, and you're steering the horse. You're controlling the horse in which way it goes. He's saying, my life is controlled by the love of Christ. It's so overwhelmed me and is, is in the front of my mind and all that I do. It's so ingrained in me that it controls everything that I do. All of us are controlled by something. Think about that. What is it that controls you in your life? Ironically, a lot of us are controlled by a love for something, which is basically worship. All of us worship. It's whether we worship Christ or something else besides him. It's whether the love of Christ controls us or the love of you can fill in the blank. What controls your life? What, what is behind the motivation behind the decisions that you make every day? Is it, here's really the question, is it the love of Christ? And what is the love of Christ? He breaks it down. One died for all, therefore all have died. In other words, the playing field has been leveled. 
The Son of God from heaven came down, died a brutal death on the cross. The Son of God. Everyone has been brought to the, to the level playing field <laughs> at the cross. Like, that's it. There are those who are now dead because they're, they're the living dead, or those who are alive because they put their faith in Christ, because they trusted in what they did for them, and his spirit quickens, quickens them and makes them alive. That's his point. And those who are alive don't live for themselves anymore, but for Jesus Christ, the one who died for them. Um, I just want to explore this just a little bit and think of it in a way that you might not have thought about it before. Um, a lawyer, teacher of the law, comes to Jesus. You know, some of you know the story in the Gospels. And he says, Rabbi, teacher, how do you read the law? Which was a common thing to do f- with rabbis back then. They each had their own perspective. How do you read the law? What's the most important commandment in the law? What does Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. What he's actually doing there is a, it's a pop, it was a popular and is a rabbinical method of linking two passages of Scripture together. Deuteronomy 6, 5, I believe, Leviticus nineteen eighteen. He's taking those and linking them together so that they become inseparable, and actually the latter becomes the greater, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is those two are the most important law, the one most important law, loving God and loving others. Have you ever thought like, okay, loving God is the first most important, so I got to do that first, then once I get that down, then I can start loving other people? So in other words, like, as long as I'm loving God and worshiping, if I love other people and that's just even extra, it's not, and I'll, I'll show you why. I think the disciples understood this. The Apostle Paul understood it. Romans chapter 12, here's what he says. It's an amazing verse. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, it's fulfilled the entire law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying the fulfillment of the entire law is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says it again in the book of Galatians. If I can find it. 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus say before he left his disciples to go to the cross? One command I give you. Giving you one command before I go. This is the most important thing. John chapter 15, the entire passage. One command I give you. Love God with all your heart. Right? No. Love each other as I have loved you. The greatest commandment. In other words, if we're not loving each other, what are we doing? That's the greatest command that he gave us. First John is the most beautiful unpacking of this. Here's how he sums it up. First John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world 
so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He took the wrath of God upon himself for us so we could be set free. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He goes down in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone, check this out. This is an unbelievable verse. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. They're inseparable. The way to love God is loving your brother. If you're not loving those around you, and you come into worship and you're like, oh, God, I love you so much. I'll get the loving my neighbor thing down later. Like, you're missing it. This is the love that Paul was controlled by. He has loved us. I think it's, to be honest with you, I think it's not far stretched to say that we're not even capable of loving God, really. He loved us. He did it all. So now he's like, you can't love me anyway. So love the people I've made in my image. That's how you can honor me. That's how you can love me is by loving them. Here's the principle here. Guys, I know that if you're in a relationship, you're married, have a girlfriend, fiance, whatever that is, you understand this principle. When you go to her and you haven't done jack squat for her, <laughs> you don't really do anything except watch a lot of football and uh, drink beer, whatever you do. You haven't really thought much about her. You haven't been serving her. And then one day you're just like, just overwhelmed with emotion. And you're like, baby, I love you. Right? What do you what's the common response? You go, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't love me. You haven't done anything for me. You say you love me, but you don't, you know, get the Z snap or whatever. This is where, like, if I may be so bold to say, like, if I may be so bold to say, this is where I think God is like a woman. Okay? He's kind of like a woman in this. He's like, hey. You come to me and you sing song, beautiful songs. You're like, I love you so much, God. <laughs> Crying. But you, you don't love anyone around you. He's like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of this gathering. Go love somebody. God's just like, you can't, you can't love me unless you love the people around you. And it starts with people closest to you, like your family, like your wife, your kids if you have them. The people that you come into contact with every day, whether they're believers in Christ or not. God's like, this is what I'm commanding you to do. Love each other, love the body, and love people around you. And stop coming, stop not doing that and then coming in here and singing songs to me and acting like you love me because you have some deep-seated emotion. The emotion comes later, and it should be there to a certain extent, but love is an action. It's something, check this out, that God did to us. It's something that we do to other people around us. You guys follow me? All right. So Paul says the love of Christ controls us. Paul was so captivated by the cross of Jesus and what happened there and the love that God had showed to him that he's like, it controls my life. Everything that I do, I do crazy things because of the love of Christ and I do it for other people created in his image, either to serve them or for them to come to know him, the hope that they might 
So the fear of God, the love of God. Fear of God and the love of God is what motivated Paul to engage passionately in ministry. Ask yourself those questions. Where am I at with those? The fear of God and the love of God today. Verse 16, this is the mindset for ministry. So we got the motivation for ministry, now the mindset. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, in light of all that, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Okay, this is the one that's just hard for me, like I've got to be honest with you guys. We regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean, the flesh? It's like, it's, it's a way of saying according to human terms. See people through human eyes as opposed to through the eyes of God and what he did, what he has done for us through Jesus and what he's done for them. So there's certain people in this world that we just don't naturally connect with or that extremely annoy us just because of their personality and our personality, whatever that is. That's when we, when we are annoyed by them and then we avoid them, then we're looking at them in the flesh, through the eyes of the flesh. That's what we're doing. Now most of us are like immediately, because like, I know I am, I, I would never do that. How could I do that when Jesus died for me? Right? That would be, that would be a sin. <laughs> I would never do that, right? But then, if you really are honest with yourself, I do it all the time. It's crazy that I've been studying this passage this week, and like, I've been struggling with this. I don't know if it's just because like the passage had me start thinking about it more, or if Satan's just putting all these annoying people in my life to try to throw me off track. I don't know. But there's these people that God's placed in my life that are just like, they're hard to love. I'm just like, I don't even want to be around. It's no one in this room, by the way, just FYI. Um, but, but it's just like, oh, man, like they're just, they're either annoying or like I just don't want to deal with them. But God's saying, I don't want you to view them, anyone that way. Because when you do that, you're saying that you're better than them. You're saying that Christ's death on the cross was more sufficient for you but not for them. Like, you're worthy of saving more than they are. Remember what I said? The playing field's been leveled. The foot of the cross. We're all the same. When Jesus stoops down and washes his disciples' feet, the live Son of God, the eternal Son of God, comes from glory, bows down and washes dirty, disgusting feet. If you can't go that low, you're saying you're better than Jesus, basically. I, I won't do that for that person. I won't stoop that low. Guys, we... There's no one that's not worthy of our love. And I'm saying that, and I know I'm preaching it, and it's great when you're up here with a microphone, right? You can say whatever you want. But I just want you to know, like, I struggle with that horribly. Like, how do I begin to view those people? Um, so I want you to just, like, close your eyes for a minute and just think, think about something with me for a second to kind of help engage our minds. I want you to just think about one or two people... <laughs> Whoever comes to mind first, that just annoy the heck out of you, okay? People that you just, like, I would rather not be around this person if I don't have to. They annoy me, or maybe it's someone that's hurt you, you're upset with them. Just whatever pops in there, don't fight it. Don't reason with it. Just think about no longer viewing that person according to the flesh. What would it be like for you to say, God loves that person and has called me to love them with a sacrificial, selfless love? What would it look to unpack that this week in your life? I don't think it's going to happen overnight. You can, you can open your eyes now. 
I just want to bring it home a little bit to us because I know it has for me this week. What does that look like? How do I do that? I think there's two ways. One is, yes, to begin serving them and engaging with them. But the other is, like, maybe we just need to go back to the cross when we're at communion today. Just say, you know what, maybe I just don't, maybe I'm not getting the sacrifice that was made for me. Maybe it's just not hitting home that the Son of God's flesh was, was torn and he was brutally beaten and naked on a cross where I should have been in his place. Maybe it's just not hitting home, like, wow, God loves me. How could I think of another person like this? Maybe that's where we need to go this week, see what comes out of that. That's got to be our mindset ministry. Let's keep moving. Therefore, if anyone, verse 17, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is so beautiful. If anyone puts their trust in the Messiah, in Jesus, they're a new creation. It's not just like he makes you a better person <laughs> or changes your life. He, he literally replaces your heart and gives you a new one. Like you're a new, he recreates, he's recreating you. He's recreating that person next to you that knows Christ. It's, it's a beautiful thing. That creation is not happening overnight. But it's like, it's a fresh start. So we need to view our brothers and sisters as new creations, but also people that don't know Christ as a potential new creation. That's what we need to do. Man, you guys have heard stories before of, of unlikely candidates come to Christ. Just like, dude, Paul was one of them, killing Christians. I could never imagine this person. I'm not going to waste my time, right? You can't look at it that way. God's a God of miracles. He does amazing things. We've got to view that person as God loves this person. This person can come to know Christ. Maybe God wants me to use them to bring them to him. Let's wrap it up with this. Verse 18. This is the heart of the passage. This is, if you're taking notes, the ministry. Got the motivation for ministry, the mindset for ministry. This is the ministry right here that we're all to engage in. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in case we didn't understand it the first time, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay. This is beautiful. God has been working. God is the one reconciling people to himself, not us. God is always working. Jesus said that. My Father is always working. God's on a mission, reconciling the world to himself. You never see Abraham going up to God, praying. God's like, what's up? Abraham's like, you know what? I know this world is jacked up, but I got an idea. Why don't you send your son down <laughs> to die for everyone's sins, and then we can all be reconciled to you? And God's like, I like it. Let's do it. You know, you never see that. It's always like God shows up. He's like, boom. Hey, how's it going? Let me let you in on what, I, what I'm doing. I'd like you to be a part of it. See, with Abraham, Moses, David, I don't care who it is, with Paul, that's what's going on is God's the one working. This is God's heart. This is what he wants to do. And he invites us into it. Here's what we do is we, read, we like to read this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Ah, it's beautiful. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us to yourself. Woo! I'll see you next week, maybe tomorrow in my quiet time. You've got to read the rest. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Here's where we oftentimes miss it, is we're just like content with the fact that God reconciled us to himself. I am saved. 
hallelujah, I'm a Christian now, but we never engage in the ministry. Look at how serious this is for a minute. He's entrusted to us. He's given us the ministry. He's entrusted to us the message. Remember the word entrusted? Matthew 25, the talents. He entrusted his property to them. What a, that's an amazing word. He's entrusted to us. The word trust is in there. He trusts us to engage in this ministry that he has given us. We experience it. We taste of it. And then he entrusts us with carrying that out into the world around us. Why does he do it? I have no idea. We're not very good at it from my experience. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. But that's the way he wants to work. Jesus comes down. The Son of God comes down. I would have done it differently. He lives among us for 30 years doing God knows what. I don't know what he's doing for 30 years. Carpentry, whatever. He wasn't working at the church. Lives a life. For 30 years as a human being, son of God in this body with all of its issues and problems, all of the, the, the struggles of this life, he lives it. He engages the ministry, proclaims the kingdom for three years, and then he gives his life on a cross for us. I love the message says that, John chapter 1, where it says that he came down and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling among us. It says in the message he moved into the neighborhood. He didn't just shout it from heaven and say, all right, everybody, here's the deal. <laughs> Turn or burn, simple as that. I'll be back in like an hour. Everybody go on this side of the line that wants to go to heaven. You know what I mean? He like moved into the neighborhood. It's crazy. We're supposed to do that too. We're supposed to move into the neighborhood of the person with us, get into their life. It's messy. It's not easy to do. But we're supposed to do that. We've been entrusted with it. Okay, some of you are like, okay, Billy, but... Now, if you're really scholarly, you might say, yes, but Paul's talking about himself and his companions, that they've been given the mystery of reconciliation, so we're out of it. Okay, maybe that's true, but if that is true, then they're also the only ones that have been reconciled to God, so you're pretty much out of luck, okay? He's giving an example, and it's clear throughout Scripture that this is the thrust of the Christian life and what God's entrusting with us. He says this in verse 20, beautiful. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We'll unpack that in a second. Um, but as we close, I really want to drive this home because this is something that's very difficult for us to do, and I know that because we don't do it. I know in my own life it is. The temptation is just like Pastor Sean's going to do it, and Royce, and, you know, the elders are going to do it, and, and whoever else, leadership, whatever that looks like. They're, they're going to take care of this. We'll just come to church, bring our friends, and Pastor Sean will share the gospel with them. Everything's going to be okay. It's not, not me. I just got to get on with what I'm doing. Check this out. Ephesians 4.12 says uh, that he, Jesus, gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. That's where we get the word pastors. And teachers, he gave them to the church to do what? Dum-dum-dum. To equip the saints, that's you guys, for the work of ministry. Okay, we get it backwards sometimes. You guys have the good job. You guys have the sexy job, okay? Our job is to make you guys look good. It's pretty much why we're here. To equip you, to encourage you, to give you tools to do the ministry of reconciliation. You guys are really quiet right now. <laughs> are you with me? 
Okay. You guys are lucky. You guys have the good job. You get to go out and be a part of this. You get to be what he calls an ambassador for Christ. I'm just going to unpack this for a second as we wrap it up. Because this is, if you take anything home today, like, I hope it's this. You are an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador, as most of you know, is someone who represents another nation in a foreign nation. So they live in that nation. They're representing that nation. Like, the ambassador to the U.S. and India. They're watching him. He's making, you know, he's representing us and what we're about. If he does something that doesn't represent us correctly, that reflects on us. God's saying, in Christ, I was reconciling the world to myself, and now I'm doing it in you, doing it through you, my people. You're my ambassadors. You represent Christ in this world. Okay, what's, what's wrapped up in that? We can unpack that for hours. Here's a few key things. You're representing him, so the way that we live our life is a reflection of people. They're watching us going, okay, this is what it's like the kingdom of God is like, I guess, like your life. That's a humbling thing right there. The words that we say, there's a message he's entrusted to us. Now what we tend to do is we just start spouting off the message, convenient times, but then our life doesn't measure up with it. They're confused. Like, I don't get it. Like, you're supposed to be loving each other, and God loves everyone, and He, the message is apparently, you know, I'm going to hell if I don't believe in God. And yet, it doesn't seem like you care that much. All of these things are wrapped up. Like, they're watching the church, and they're saying, what's, what's different about you guys than anything else? How do we do this? Here's how we do it. It's not the pastors doing it, the evangelists. I have no problem with, like, evangelism Saturday from, like, 10 to 11. We're going to go assault people with the gospel. I mean, I'm fine with that. But, and I think God uses it, and I've done it before. Um, But that's where I think the church has gone wrong, is that there's this secular, sacred divide, right? Like, the sacred time is the time at church, which church isn't a place you can go to, so it's kind of confusing, you know? Church is the people. We're the church wherever we are. So we go to church, like, evangelism's on Saturday from 10 to 12, that's the sacred time of church. So we go and we do that. Then we go home. It's like now I don't have to do anything, any evangelism until next Saturday because I did it for two hours. And then we get, we, we like, we've, we narrowed it down to this little window. So we're just like, it's more urgent. It's just like I have two hours to save all these people from hell. So I'm just like, I'm going to get mad at them, whatever it takes. Like I'm just going to be urgent. And these people are just like, you don't even like, you don't even know who I am, right? Like we'll just start. I've done this before where I've seen people when I'm doing this like, just start sharing the gospel passionately with someone, and they're like, I'm already a Christian. They're like, oh, <laughs> sorry. It's just kind of like, you, you know what I mean? It's like, whoops. It's like, would you like to, to know who I am as a person, like where I'm coming from? So I think the church, the biggest thing we have to do as a church, and this is the part that sucks for, for you and for me, we have to be the ministers of reconciliation, each one of us, wherever we are. This is just a gathering. This is where we come together we sing songs, we worship God, we hear from his word. Real church happens when we leave this place. God's placed you in a work environment, in a social setting. He's placed people around you that are not around me. People that can observe your life, and that's a good thing. They can watch your life. You can be, you have the opportunity to be relational with them and to, to, to love them, the love of Christ, and to share Christ with them. This is beautiful news, you guys, okay? Let me just bring this home a little bit. I'm an introvert, 
I know it doesn't seem like right now because I'm talking all the time, but what am I going to do? If I was silent for 15 minutes, it would be kind of awkward. I'm an introvert, right? I don't talk a lot. I'm not like the go-getter. Pastor Sean is not an introvert. Some of you know him. He's an extrovert, right? He's like, boom, he's wheeling and dealing. He has no problem going up to a complete stranger and starting a conversation. And I just sit there and watch. I'm just like, man, I wish I could do that, but I just can't. But that's him, and God uses that. He's able to meet people that I could connect with, people I could never connect with. I've always thought, growing up thinking, I grew up in the church, like you have to be, we just have to force ourselves to be extroverted. And we're just, I'm just going to have to be social because people are going to hell. And like, I got to tell them, you know, and it's not my character. It's a lot of pressure, dude, for an, an introverted, artistic, you know, introspective type like me. Like, it just doesn't go well, dude. Like, it, it's disastrous. So here's the beauty of this is like, it doesn't have to look like that. Guess who? If you're an artist in here, you're the introspective, artistic person. Guess who you're probably going to be hanging out with, not typing on Christians you're going to hang out with? Like, not the extroverts, probably the same type of people. Probably even in the same type of art that you're into, okay? Here's the beautiful thing is you don't have to go out and do evangelism. Do it where you are. God's, like, bringing people to you. That's what's hilarious. God's just taking people. He's bringing them into your life, people that you can connect with because you get each other, so you can share the gospel with them. Isn't that amazing? You can pray for them. You can be relational with them. You can show them the love of Christ, and you can look for opportunities to pray for them. It feels like everybody's leaving right now. I'm sorry. Does it? I was talking about hell too much. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, well, we'll just keep going, and then hopefully someone will warn us. We're in danger. <laughs> okay, there's an investigation happening. Okay, this is good. This will remind us of the urgency of what we're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Long story short, here's what I'd like to challenge you guys with and leave you with today. When you leave this place today, or even right now during this time of communion, we're going to worship, we're going to take communion. Um, how am I doing as an ambassador where God has placed me? He, we don't have to do the extra work of trying to go meet new people. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Try to change your personality, change what you do. Be who you are. Think about who are the people God's placed in my life that don't know him. I guarantee you, you can come up with at least five if you think hard enough. How am I reaching out to them? First thing you can do is just start praying for them. Just start praying for them. Just write down their names. Just go, God, I don't know what you're going to do. This scares the heck out of me, but... I just pray for them. If Get to know who they are, then you can pray for them more accurately. You know, don't do the old, like, Lord, I just lift all these up to you. You know who they are, Lord. <laughs> it's like, God, I'd like you to know who they are. Get to know them. Pray for them. Look for, pray for opportunities just to show love of Christ, to talk about God in not an awkward way. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes we force it. God's sovereign. It's okay. He's not, the, the fate of the world is not depending on you and whether you tell someone in this window of opportunity. What God wants you to do is start thinking about those people, loving them, praying for them. And when the opportunity arises, he'll give you the strength and the courage to do it. Important piece is know what the message is. <laughs> it's a good one. Luckily for us, he ends it that way. Let's read this before we go into communion. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to read that one more time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the end of all of it. The eternal Son of God came down to where we are into our neighborhood and lived with us, lived among us. He never sinned. There was no deceit found in his mouth, Peter says. He was perfect, perfectly righteous before the Father. We deserve to go and to die and to be punished for our sin, but he stepped in our place. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. He didn't sin, but somehow our sin was laid on him. Somehow he took our sin, all the punishment we deserve for, the, for our sin. Imagine him on the cross and what he went through, the brutal death. Like that was supposed to be you. That's justice is that you and I are on that cross because we have offended God and he has righteous wrath and judgment that has to be poured out on us or he's not just if he doesn't. Son of God stepped in, took it, so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. So that now he looks at us as righteous when we're in Christ. Even though we're growing and we're screwing up and we're struggling with sin, he's like, at the end of the day, you're mine. And I view you through the lens of the sacrifice of my son. And you will be with me forever in eternity. It's just amazing. We're going to sing a song in a second. And one line of the song is, um, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin on that cross. We'll never know the, what that cost for us to be saved and to know him and to be made righteous. He gets our sin on the cross. We get the righteousness of God. He's been raised to life, and he stands now, and he says in his word that he's here with us right now. His presence is here. He's a savior. He wants to heal you and restore you and meet you where you are. So I pray as we come today, this just wouldn't be a snack as it sometimes is. Don't really think about it. This would be the body of Christ that was broken for us so that we could, could be given life, so that we could be made whole. Let's just meditate on that and take it in and allow God to examine our hearts and speak to us as we do. Um, worship team is going to come.